three kids and then four kids while we did the residency together. So Anthony Locke, who spoke for us before, is Todd's son-in-law, and uh, he's, he's like a son to us in some respects. <laughs> um, but super happy uh, for Todd to be speaking uh, this morning. So after I pray, you just come on up, brother, and, and preach the word. Father, we come before you as those who need to hear your voice from your word. We, we need you to speak from your word to us. Even as we read in our call to worship, we, many of us, are burdened and weighed down by the cares of this world, by our life circumstances, even by our own sin. And we, we need the truth that your word will prevail over our unbelief, that your, your gospel is true and it must overcome our thoughts. It, it, it must change our attitudes. It will change our attitudes through the, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that as your word is preached, we would be changed. We would behold Jesus Christ in all of his beauty and truth. And, and that, that would change us. We, we would not go from here the same. And even as we leave, we know that Monday morning... We'll forget many of the things that we have heard. We pray that it would, it would sink down deep in us, shape and fashion us into your likeness. God, we thank you for your word alone that is our hope. You have not hidden yourself in this way. You have revealed everything you want us to know about yourself in your scriptures. And we thank you that it is in the scriptures alone that we we find salvation. We pray that you would help us not only to believe that more as we gather together today, but you, you would help us to take that out to our friends and neighbors and loved ones. The good news of the gospel. And we pray that it would create a culture in us that is so excited about your word and your salvation, your justification and, and your glory that we couldn't help but share it with those around us. We pray, Father, that you would make an outpost for the gospel here, here across from the campus, here where many people need to know uh, the truth about Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we thank you that we're not alone in this work, in this good gospel work. We thank you for our dear friends here in Corvallis who are proclaiming the gospel along with us. We thank you for Calvin Presbyterian up the road, up in North Corvallis. And we pray that as they gather together, they would be calmed and settled and, and also stirred up by your word to love and good works. I pray for Zach as he preaches that you would give him, you'd give him freedom and power, that your word would go forth and it would do all that you have planned for it. We thank you for our dear friends at Northwest Hills, and we ask that you would give them great grace as they gather today, as they hear your word preached, and as they fellowship around the gospel. We pray that they would be stirred, stirred up to love and good works and go out to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family here in Corvallis, and that your name might be made great. God, you told us to pray, hallowed be your name. So we pray that your name would be hallowed here in this city and beyond in our neighboring cities. 
Father, we thank you that we're, we're partners. We also have partners in Oregon, just as Todd's coming from Henson. We thank you for our gospel partners there. We pray that you'd bless them as the word goes forth. You would, you would help some who are hanging on by a thread to cling to you. We pray that they would, as they have already sent out churches like uh, Redemption in North Portland, we pray that you would stir them up to more gospel work that way, more church planting. God, we pray that you would bless them by revealing yourself to them through your word. God, we do pray for our world, and we ask, God, that, Father, we want to ask big because we know what kind of God you are. You do big kinds of things, and you can, and so we ask that you would be saving people from every continent on this planet that you would stir up missionaries, even from this body and from the bodies that we prayed for, stirring them up to give their lives away for the gospel, to go to places where there is no gospel witness, like the Tibetan Plateau, God, and, and other places where there was a gospel witness, and there, there is now a dim light shining. We pray that you would stir up people to take your word and your name to these places so you might be made great and these people might experience a great salvation. So in, in all the corners of the earth, we pray that you would bring in many worshipers for yourself. And God, while you're doing this, we pray that you'd add to our number through the gospel going out from our lips in this town. And God, as you meet with others, please meet with us as well. And I pray that the, the words of Todd's mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our soon coming king. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be here in Corvallis. This is probably my favorite town in the whole world. Um, and so it was fun to drive in. If you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, while you're doing that, let me give you greetings from Western Seminary, where I teach, from uh, Henson Church, where I'm a member and, and, and get to serve uh, there, and they will be praying for us, I think, shortly. Mark, writer of the gospel named after him, an eyewitness of many of the things of, of which he writes, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 26. And he, that is Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. I think you should pray with me again briefly. Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us, and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 
Well, I was a student here uh, some time ago, back in the 80s, and I remember when the alarm clock would go off early in the morning, and um, sometimes it would be J. Vernon McGee, and I would have to throw on my sweats and get to class in the five minutes that I had allotted myself from the residence hall where I, where I lived. At, at other times, at other times, if I wasn't on a Christian radio station, it would probably be Paul Harvey. Do you all remember Paul Harvey? Back in the day, does anybody remember Paul Harvey at all? Okay, so uh, some of you, some of you at least. Paul Harvey was very famous for, uh, well, he, he was a great storyteller. He was a great storyteller. And what he delighted in was telling people a story that they were familiar with, that was page one, and then he would tell you something that, he was, that we weren't as familiar with. And he called it the rest of the story. And it was always something uh, very interesting. Well... I want to do a little bit of Paul Harvey this morning. As you know, uh, this is, well, it's October 31st, which means it's Halloween. Uh, but in the history of the church, this has been understood to be, at least the last 500 years, as, uh, as a Reformation day. Uh, some 504 years ago now, uh, we celebrate this day. It was the day that Martin Luther was supposed to have uh, tacked his 95 theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg. Now, about 500 years ago, not, not on this day, uh, we have the famous story of the Diet of Worms in 1521, 500 years ago. And I want to give you the story, and then I want to give you the rest of the story. So here's page one, the story. You, many of you are familiar with the story of the Diet of Worms. That's where Martin Luther courageously faced down the Roman Emperor Charles V and the church hierarchy by answering his inquisitor, the Roman Catholic John Eck's demands that he recant his writings. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure you all know Luther's famous words. He said, I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That's page one. Here's page two, the rest of the story. Most do not know what happened next. Perhaps you assumed that he left in triumph after that mighty declaration of his trust in the Lord. Unless I am convinced by the word of God and by reason, I will not recant. I will not recant. And maybe you thought that, that he exited that assembly, hoisted up on the shoulders of all of his, the people that he had persuaded to chant of Luther, Luther, Luther. But of course, that would be far from what actually happened. In reality, he had gotten himself into even a larger pickle than what he was in before because he had questioned the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and now he had also defied the emperor basically to his face. face. He was in it deep now. Now Luther had a protector. He had a benefactor, Friedrich the Wise. And he had been responsible for negotiating a promise of safe passage for Luther from his home in Wittenberg to this assembly, the Diet of Worms. There was a promise made by the Catholic Church. We will not harm him on his way there while he is at Worms, and we will let him go back. 
But Friedrich was not confident that such promises would be kept. We'll explain why here in just a moment. He didn't think that Luther would make it back safely. And so rather than wait for chance, Luther was advised to flee, basically in the middle of the night, to get back home to safety in Wittenberg. And then, while on the road, about halfway in between Worms and Wittenberg, Friedrich the Wise had Luther kidnapped. He was held then at a place called Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, Germany, about halfway between Wittenberg and Worms. Now, this kidnapping was done by, for protective purposes, but it was still very real. Luther did not know what was going on. The abduction was loud and it was dramatic. And Luther's protector, Friedrich, didn't actually know where the kidnappers were going to take this former Augustinian monk. He wanted the pretense of being able to say, I have no idea where Luther is. But now Luther was a man at odds with the most powerful church and the state in the land. Luther would stay at Wartburg Castle in Eisenach. It was a stronghold, one of many that was owned by Friedrich, somewhat against his will. And he was there for over 10 months under basically house arrest for his own good. But it was still a kind of house arrest. He was there until March of 1522. Luther was a wanted man. And he had been a wanted man for quite some time. But he thought maybe now would be a good time to change his, my appearance. And so he had plenty of time on his hands. And so he let his hair grow out. And that erased that mark, the, the, the monk's tonsure, you know, the little bald spot right in the middle of your head. He also grew a beard, which he hated. But it would endear him some 500 years later to Pacific Northwest Sisters. And he, he's got all this free time on his hands. So what's he going to do? Well, he embarked on a riding expedition so prolific that it has hardly been rivaled since. He didn't want to betray his incognito status as he starts pumping out all of this writing. And so he wrote under a pseudonym, Junker Jorg, or if you speak American, Junker George. He, he produced volumes and volumes of sermons and tracts and commentaries. But perhaps his greatest achievement, his greatest achievement, fundamental to all of his reforming efforts in Germany, was this. Luther produced a German translation of the entire New Testament. And he did it in 11 weeks. Now let that sink in. That is an extraordinary feat. I mean, most of us don't even read the New Testament in 11 weeks, let alone translate it from the Greek at a time when there was no standardized German language. His work stands not only as an incredible theological accomplishment for reasons that we're going to see, but also as a monumental linguistic achievement, as would happen repeatedly and still does translating the scriptures into the lingua franca, the, the common language of the people, served to solidify and standardize that particular language. Much the same thing happened in English with the work of John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. More on them in a little bit. So Luther was not just biding his time, engaging in trivial tasks while at Castle Wartburg. His was a strategic effort 
driven by his conviction that it is the word of God that is living, powerful, and effectual. Now, make no mistake, few people would ever work as hard as Martin Luther did. But we should heed Luther's wisdom. He was convinced that if the word of God is not proclaimed, even the seemingly easiest task cannot be done. But if the word of God is read, if it's taught, if it's preached, then anything is possible. Now, of course, Luther didn't come up with this on his own. He got it from Jesus and the biblical prophets. So let's read this passage one more time. It's, it's a brief one. This is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So this is Mark 4, but we all know Mark didn't start writing in Mark 4, right? Mark started in, you might want to write this down, Mark 1. Yeah, yeah. So Mark assumes that by the time we get to Mark 4, we've already read Mark 1, 2, and 3. And so what, what's going on in that ministry? Well, Jesus, relatively early in his mission, he's teaching by the Sea of Galilee here in Mark 4. And there's already controversy surrounding the ministry of Jesus. Now, there's a buzz about him, to be sure. People are starting to talk. And they're thinking, could this be the guy? And the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they're stepping in to do damage control because what the last thing that they needed for peace with Rome was another religious zealot rocking the boat, disturbing the peace. And so Jesus, in response to the criticism of his ministry, began to teach in parables. Jesus explained in Mark 4 that his parables were meant to give out the secrets of the kingdom. So anytime you see a parable about the kingdom of God, you should know this is a secret of the kingdom of God. But, but, but what are these secrets? Well, it's not like new or changing information about the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had been anticipated and prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. It was to be a time of healing and prosperity, a vindication of God's people, judgment on God's enemies. All of this was part of what the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament had to say about the kingdom. And of course, Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So when he taught on the kingdom, when he gave secrets of the kingdom, it wasn't to radically change the kingdom agenda, but it was to reorient people's thinking about how this kingdom would in fact come because it wasn't going to come the way that they thought. Now their thinking was influenced by the scriptures, but there was a lot of speculation as well. What's the best way to bring about the kingdom? What's the best way? And so in the first parable, the parable of the soils, Christ explained, contrary to what they would have been thinking, that the kingdom would grow through the seed of the word of God. And the response to it would not be universal acclaim and acceptance. In fact, it seemed like from this parable, Jesus is preparing us to recognize when the kingdom comes, a lot of people 
the majority of people aren't going to be too geeked about it. No, it's, but what it depends upon is the state of your heart. In Mark 4, 21 through 25, the passage right before this, Jesus speaks of a lamp that's placed on a stand and how measured recompense is given to those who have this message. And his point there is that the secrets of the kingdom are precious and to be cherished. Hang on to these secrets. They're valuable because it will guide us in this inaugurated kingdom that we all, sitting here right now, are a part of. In the parable of the growing seed that we just read, our primary text here, well, it's, it's, it's not all that hard or long to exegete it. Jesus aims to instruct on the mysterious growth that can be expected once the kingdom is inaugurated. And he warns the kingdom is going to grow slowly, but God will do it. And so again, he likens the kingdom to a farmer that is scattering seed upon the ground, much like in the first parable, the parable of the soils. And he notes that after the farmer is done sowing, things are basically out of his hands. He may still work hard. He's going to have to work hard. But the actual growth of the seed takes place by virtue of what is in the seed itself. I, I don't normally do Greek unless it's kind of fun or interesting or it's a word I already know. But, but, but that word there about how the, it grows by what's in itself, it's literally automate, where we get our word automatic, right? Automatic. It grows automatically. It grows because of what's in itself, not necessarily because what the farmer is doing. The farmer may be a trained and experienced agrarian with an incredible work ethic, but he doesn't know exactly how the seed grows. In the text, the growth is automatic, by itself. And so the farmer sleeps and rises, sleeps and rises, day after day, night after night, and the growth occurs. From the seed going into the ground, once the farmer has placed it there, at every stage, the seed just grows. The earth produces by itself. Of course, the point here is not to say that farmers don't actually work hard. We know that's not the case. The point is to show that the growth of the kingdom and the ultimate consummation of the kingdom, it's not dependent upon what you or I do. God might use you, but he does not need you. It's God who brings the growth. And I think that's a comforting thought because, I mean, look at you, right? <laughs> look at you. You look like me. You don't look like you have all of the answers. You don't look like the kind of people who can just make or build the kingdom on your own. You look like someone like me who's trying the best that you can trying to be faithful. And so we should take comfort in this. It's God who builds his kingdom. It's God who does the actual work of life-giving and growth. Jesus has 
already established that, that the kingdom would come and it would grow by virtue of the proclamation of the word of God. And that would have been contrary to people's thinking too at that time. They, they might have thought, hey, when the Jewish Messiah shows up in fulfillment of all of the prophecies, it's going to be with you know, trumpets blaring and great fanfare and military might and great spokesmen and all of that. And Jesus says, no, it's more like you're just casting seed. It's like you're casting seed. This is the preaching of the good news, he called it, the gospel. So it's not too much of a stretch then as we get to this passage to assume that the seed in this parable that the farmer has planted, it's the very same word of God, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And again, in contrast with the expectations of the strategies of the people of the day, the way of the kingdom is not the way of the world. Jesus, in one of his famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, he'd already established that the ethic of the kingdom, how people were supposed to comport themselves and behave, those who were part of the kingdom, it is very different from the ethic of this world. Its values are radically upside down compared to the values of this world. And then here he warns that the growth will occur in unexpected ways. We might expect the kingdom to grow through powerful movers and shakers, the, the religious or the political elite of the day. We, we might expect that it would come at the, at the point or by the blade of a sword. We might expect it to be promoted by charismatic and persuasive arguments through people with big personalities. But Jesus warns us and also encourages us that that's not really true. Jesus spoke of the kingdom often, and, 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 and I think we need to hear and understand this. He spoke of the kingdom often. You might have noticed that, right? It comes up every now and then with Jesus, like all the time. He was kind of a one-trick pony in his teaching, wasn't he? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Even after he rose from the dead, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. He was right on message as if, as if the crucifixion was all part of the plan, right? Because it was. It was. It didn't take him off his message at all. Kingdom of God before death and resurrection. Kingdom of God after in all of his teaching. And so he taught extensively on the kingdom of God. But you know a verb that he never used in terms of a command to us? Build. Not one time when you read through the Bible will you ever see any sort of command. You, disciple, go out and build the kingdom. Why? Because that is way above our pay grade. Not just that, we don't have the ability to build the kingdom. That is a God thing. That's a God thing. Now, we testify to the kingdom, we seek the kingdom, we proclaim the kingdom, we teach about the kingdom, but it is God who builds. God who gives the growth. The certain inexorable growth of the kingdom will not be due to anything having to do with human ingenuity god brings the growth of the seed and god brings the growth of the kingdom and the very same god who said let there be light and let the earth bring forth and sprout is the same god who through his powerful word will bring forth the kingdom now, it's not to say that Christians don't have a job to do with regard to the kingdom. 
certainly not saying that sloth is the order of the day. On the contrary, like the farmer, we labor day by day to sow, to tend, to harvest. But it is God who gives the growth. Or to be more specific, it is the word of God that does it all. Which takes us back to our our Reformation idea here. Thinking about the Reformation, you, you heard Doug earlier talk about sola scriptura. That is, the Bible alone, the Bible alone, the scriptures, the word of God are authoritative. It's not a nuda scriptura, like the only truth you'll ever find is in the Bible and everything else is false. No, it's more about authority. It's about authority. And, and the, the reformers were convinced 500 years ago that the Bible is the word of God. And that is, is, a, is an is of identification. The Bible equals the word of God. That is, to disobey or disbelieve the Bible is the same as disobeying or disbelieving God. They understood They understood that it is the word of God that created the church and creates it and sustains it, not vice versa. The church doesn't create the word of God. The word of God creates the church. And so they were convinced, they were convinced that the Bible is authoritative. They were convinced that the Bible is living and active. They were convinced that the word of God, the Bible, is sufficient. And they were convinced that God does things through his word. And those are the four application points I want us to think about here. The reformers believed this. They staked their very ministries on it. And the result was an articulation of the abiding by this principle of sola scriptura. The Bible and the Bible alone is the ultimate authority for the church and individual Christian in all matters of faith and practice. Now, of course, if we think back historically, they, the reformers had to depend upon the word of God, didn't they? They might have been protected by a few princes, but they were no match for the might of Rome or the Holy Roman Emperor. If change was to take place, it would almost have to be only by the word because the reformers actually had very little else at their disposal. And they knew it. They also were concerned that the very gospel had been lost. That gospel is contained in the word of God. So the reformers and some of the pre-reformers that I'll mention here in a moment were convinced that the best way, the best way to recover and safeguard the gospel was to put the word of God into the minds and into the hearts of God's people. But in order to do that, they had to put the Bible into their hands and the word of God continuously before their eyes and into their ears. That is, people had to have a Bible in their own language that they could understand. Now, the common practice of that time was to show up to a church service, to show up to the Mass, and hear the Bible read in Latin. Now, how many of you here speak Latin? Put your hands up really high. Okay, do you know what that makes you? Just like virtually every Christian 500 years ago, including the priests. Unless you happen to grow up in Rome where that was the common vernacular, 
you didn't understand what was being said. And that was untenable when people taught about, no, we have to get the Bible in the hands of the people. So I, I want to give you three quick snapshots of, uh, of some reformers, because it's, it's Reformation Day here. First, a man by the name of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. He was a, a brilliant scholar, a debater. He lectured at Oxford University. He was the rector of numerous churches, and he lived in the 1300s, about 140 years before the time of, of Martin Luther. He had grown concerned up in England, he was, he was at Oxford, with the corruption of the church and the corruption, as he thought, of the papacy. And so he spoke out against the, the Catholic church and its corruption, and of course the papacy bitterly resented that. But it takes time because this is the 1300s, right? And so it takes time for word to get from that island way up in Eng England down to Italy and then a response back. He spoke out against the need for an intermediary, a priest or a pope, thinking that Jesus is our, actually our great high priest. We don't need anyone else to communicate with God. He spoke out against the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that the, that, that the, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the very same Lord's Supper that we'll practice here in, in a moment, um, it, 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 it liter becomes literally the, the body of Jesus and, and, and the blood of Jesus. The church, because of that, tried to get him ousted from Oxford, and eventually they succeeded. But Wycliffe's primary concern, he earnestly believed that people needed the Bible in their own language if there was ever going to be any kind of revival or purification of the church. And so he, he famously said, it helpeth Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue in which they know best Christ's sentence. That itself needs some explanation, right? That it, it helps Christians if they can get the Bible in a language they actually understand. That doesn't sound like rocket science, does it? So he's responsible for the first English translation of the scriptures. And for that, he was pronounced a heretic, an enemy of the church. And there's only one due punishment for heretics, death. He translated the Bible from the Latin, and people began to hear the word of God, Bible teaching, in a language they actually understood. And one result <laughs> was that the people who were hearing these Bible stories began to compare their own religious leaders with what the Bible had to say about what a religious leader ought to be. And the comparison was not very happy. Wycliffe published his New Testament in 1380. The Old Testament followed in 1382. And this caused such a stir that the penalty for people in England being caught reading the Wycliffe Bible was forfeiture of land, cattle, life, and goods. I don't know if that was the order in which those things were done, but I suppose it doesn't really matter, right? Land, cattle, life, and goods. The penalty for reading a Bible in a language that you actually understand was forfeiture of everything. It cost you your life. Now, think on that. Think about how many Bibles you have at home. Think about your phone where you probably have like 75 different English translations of the Bible. And then think about what it was like 500 years ago. Pope John XXIII proclaimed in 1411, this pestilent and wretched John Wycliffe, of cursed memory, that son of the old serpent, endeavored by every means to attach the very faith and sacred doctrine of the Holy Church, devising 
to fill up the measure of his malice, the expedient of a new translation of the scriptures into the mother tongue. Proclaimed a heretic by the church because he wanted to get the Bible into your hands in a language you actually understand. Wycliffe died of natural causes, but his burial was anything but natural, as we'll see. So that's snapshot number one. Snapshot number two, a fellow by the name of John Huss, a contemporary of, of Wycliffe, heavily influenced by this Oxford professor, John Huss, a Bohemian living in the modern-day Czech Republic. Huss was a Catholic priest, and again, just like Wycliffe, became highly critical of the Catholic Church's doctrine of transubstantiation, the morally compromised state of the papacy and the priesthood. He, he wanted the Lord's Supper distributed to the congregation in both kinds, both bread and wine. He strongly believed, and this was his big time, strongly believed, that there should be a translation of the Bible in the vernacular of his people, in their language. And for those crimes, he was put on trial at this big church council at Constance in 1415. Now, the council promised, okay, we'll give you safe conduct to the council, and then we'll give you safe context, conduct back. You'll get there safely. Don't worry about it. But instead, he was tried, condemned, and burnt at the stake not content to end there because of Wycliffe's influence on John Huss. They decided to dig up the remains of Wycliffe. They burnt those at the stake and then scattered them into the River Swift. Why? The desire to have the word of God put into the hands of people in a language they actually understand. Third snapshot, William Tyndale lived about 100 years after Wycliffe. Dates place him approximately during the, the lifetime of the beginning of the Reformation. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He also taught at Oxford, then at Cambridge. He wanted to produce a good English translation of the New Testament, but he found that England was not a very safe place to do that because of Henry VIII. And so he moved to the continent, moved to Wittenberg to do his work of translating the Bible into English, and he actually sat under Luther's preaching. He completed his New Testament, traveled in secrecy from city to city in Germany looking for printers, and when a printer was found, the Bibles were smuggled into England in hay bales. He ended up settling in the city of Antwerp, Belgium, to complete his work on the Old Testament that was supposed to be a free city. He was supposed to be safe from the arm of the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Emperor, but in 1534, he was kidnapped out of the free city by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Tyndale had earlier been condemned as a heretic and was sentenced to death. And so he, he was strangled, then burnt at the stake. His last words, his dying words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. What was his crime? Translating the Bible into English. So again, I ask you, how many, of the how many copies of the Bible do you have at home? How many English translations do you have? I'm just going to keep keeping guilt upon you, right? <laughs> Here, don't worry, there's more guilt to come, I promise, right? Okay, so, so what are we supposed to do 500 years later today? What are we supposed to do? Well, first off, what they 
founded their Reformation work on Sola Scriptura is still very much the case today. The Bible is the word of God, and because of that, it has authority. To disobey or disbelieve the Bible is to disobey or disbelieve God. Now, for the Reformers, it was a simple question of this. Which is to be master? That's all. The church or the word? Martin Luther went against the Catholic Church and Empire in asserting that at the risk of his life, he had to be convinced by Scripture that the judgments of the church are correct, that tradition, the received teaching of the church, it has to be submitted to the authority of Scripture. It has to be checked out in light of that. Now, we typically don't have that big a problem today or that kind of problem. Our, per, our, our postmodern world has a different problem with authority. Rather than struggling between the objective doctrines of either Scripture or the church, pitting one against the other, our postmodern world would have us decide between the objective teaching of Scripture on the one hand and the subjective impulses of the self on the other hand. But when we assert sola scriptura on this October 31st in the day of our Lord 2021, right, we are declaring that we believe the Bible to be authoritative, that God has spoken clearly in his word, and that word has to be obeyed. Doesn't it just make sense? If God has spoken in it, shouldn't we obey it? Even when, especially when, that word runs contrary to the sensibilities of this age. And there are many teachings in Scripture that do, and they are unpopular. The Bible's teaching on sexuality, gender, race, preciousness of life, the value, the dignity of all people, both young and old, those biblical doctrines run against the current of our culture. And it's costly today. Maybe you won't get burned at the stake. You can be canceled. You can be derided. It hurts. But the authority of Scripture runs not just into these public things, but into these private things as well. And this is where it's hardest for me, because in my flesh, I don't actually agree with everything in the Bible. And the teachings are hard. But here's the thing. When I disagree with something in the Bible, because the Bible is the word of God, I have to repent and change my mind. I have to repent and change my mind about them. And, and again, it's, it's usually not weird doctrines. It's stuff like, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, pre present your requests to God. Then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I hear that. I hear God saying that. And I know it's authoritative. I know it's a command. And I know there's relational love backing it up. But in my flesh, I say, no, I don't want to do that, Lord. I don't want to do that. I want to worry. I want to be anxious. I want to hang on to those things because I want to control things. And God says, I've said in my word, don't do this. Those are the things that for me are the hardest. But God is right. And Todd is wrong. Right? We understand, like the reformers, the Bible is living and active. The reformers understood this because they understood the scriptures as constituted and even today, today, constitute the powerful word of the living God. God lives. 
they were, the scriptures were inspired in the past, and today they are quickened, illuminated by the Spirit of God, the sovereign and holy creator. And so he still continues to speak powerfully through his word. Far from mere words on a page or the dead letters of a bygone age, Almighty God communicates with his people even today through his word. Illumined by the Holy Spirit, the word of God testifies to Jesus Christ and directs Christ's people. Now, our society today would have you believe that, that when it comes to Bible reading, well, the, the reader is the arbiter of what is true. The reader is the actual life giver. The reader is the autonomous creator of meaning. That is, words on a page like this, they're, they're just ideas of clay. That They're waiting for a reader to come along and mold them as they want, to, to breathe life into them. The words become true. They come to life when the sovereign self ascribes meaning to them. But of course, that's not what we actually mean or what the Bible means when it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. What this tells us is that if the scriptures are living and active and if God speaks through them, then we need a steady diet of the Bible, both individually and corporately, because we have to hear from God. His word is was, always will be, life-giving. So individually, read the Bible. Be at home in the scriptures. Read small portions daily. Fill your mind with that. Then meditate on it hard. Read larger portions as well, so you can see both the forest and the trees. And then corporately, and here I know I'm preaching literally to the choir at this point, right? Don't miss an opportunity to hear the word of God preached whether it be main services, small group Bible studies, life groups, prayer meetings, whatever you call them, midweek, right? Avail yourselves of opportunities to gather with God's people, to hear from his word, and to respond to it in prayer. I guess what I'm saying is inconvenience yourself to hear from the word of God. Now, the church leadership, of course, has to be wise with this. You can't totally fill up your schedules to where it becomes burdensome. But for you and your part, be willing to be inconvenienced to read and to gather to hear God's word. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient is another conviction. The reformers understood that the scriptures were sufficient, and for them it wasn't just a wing and a prayer. The obstacles that they faced were huge. Powerful church, an antagonistic empire with more military might than men could ever hope to overcome hundreds of years of a crude tradition that made their ideas about the bible seem hopelessly out of step now they had a few things at their disposal too things that the world would recognize as helpful princes protecting them more or less usually less clever spokesmen for sure brilliant and charismatic orators a functioning printing press that was super helpful Groups of people dedicated to protecting and serving, even dying for them, that absolutely happened. And, and I suppose if you were one of these reformers, it would have been easy to rely upon things like that. But they didn't. Now, they used all of those things. They saw them as gifts from the Lord. They still understood the word to be sufficient. Now, here's what we face, but they didn't the modern world's blind commitment to science and technology. 
the pressure to entertain and maintain a fickle and tough-to-please people. Social media system that's trained people to think in a facile and shallow, emotionally responsive way, 280 characters at a time. Educational system that's more intent on building up self-esteem and engaging in social engineering than it is in building knowledge and character. A smorgasbord of churches that will allow people to sample preaching entrees without commitment. And a sense of entitlement that suggests to many that the worship service should be crafted in their image to appeal to their sensibilities to serve and satisfy their desires. They had the word of God. They believed it to be sufficient. We have the word of God. We must understand it to be sufficient too. The obstacles that they faced aren't less, were not lesser or greater than the obstacles that we face. They're just different. They relied on the word of God. The words of Jesus still hold true. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The word produces through the power inherent in it because it is the word of God. And the Apostle Paul, perhaps reflecting on this truth, responded to the church in Corinth, kind of a dysfunctional church. I'm really grateful for that dysfunctional church. It answers a lot of our questions, doesn't it? This church was dividing over loyalties to powerful personalities that had come through the church. Some people were with Paul, others with Apollos. Who do you follow? And to confront that, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 through 7, these words. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So if, if we're paying attention to that, we must understand the Bible, the word of God to be sufficient. That is, we have all of the divine words that we need to honor the Lord, to do the mission that he has given to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we have all the divine words possible. It doesn't mean that we have all the divine words that we might want. I mean, how many of you would like more divine words? You have to, I'll just raise my hand on behalf of all of you. We should all want more divine words, right? But God, in his wisdom, he's given us this. And the words that we need most are the words of the gospel, we find it in the special revelation of God inscribed in the Bible. Jesus knew and understood this. In one of his discussions with the Pharisees, Jesus told them this very thing in John 5. He told them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, what is Jesus criticizing them for? He didn't condemn them for looking for truth in all the wrong places. No, they were actually looking in the right place in the scriptures. The gospel is clearly spelled out on the pages of the Bible. He criticized them because they refused to heed his teaching. It's in the scriptures that we're told our story, our origin story. 
We find the story of creation. We're created in the image of God. We've been granted immeasurable dignity and a delegated task to rule over all that God has made. And because it's a delegated task, we must do it the way that God would have us do it. That takes us to the first two chapters of the Bible. The third chapter of the Bible is a major turning point. We find the fall, the story of our rebellion, our fall from grace. It happened really in time and in space and history. And it still rings true today. The fall reverberates. We're a broken people desperately at odds with ourselves, each other. We're at odds even with the very creation space that we inhabit. We're a broken people living in a broken world full of other broken people. But most tragically, we're at odds with God. We are desperately fallen in sin and we can do nothing to get up on our own and we are under the condemnation of God. Genesis 3. But in that same chapter, we find the beginnings of the story of redemption, the greatest news ever, that God in mercy has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He sent his son to atone for our sin, and he did that by dying on the cross and rising again, victorious over sin and its penalty, death. So the hope of the gospel is that all those who repent and place their faith in Jesus confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. And the gospel points us to Jesus. We learn how to receive eternal life in the scriptures, and we learn how to live into that life in the scriptures. So we must be very careful when we want to augment the words of scripture with other words, the wisdom of this world from self or government. Or culture. It's why at, at the worship service, like what, what we're a part of here, it's all about preaching and singing and praying the word of God. And I, I, I really hope that you're at the branch. You look forward to gathering together with God's people because it's, it's fun and life-giving. But most of all, I hope that you're here because you know you will hear the word of God here. You will hear it preached, you will sing it, and you will pray it. And Lord willing, you will never, ever be disappointed here if that's why you come. But if you come for other reasons, a good show, rocking music, cool children or youth program. Now, those things are fun. And I, and, and, and I think they're significant. But they ultimately don't matter if the word of God is not being taught and proclaimed and prayed and lived. Recall the words of Jesus. The seed grows slowly, almost imperceptibly. How many of you have ever planted a garden or, or, or tried to grow something, right? Yeah, we, we all probably have. And wouldn't it be cool if it was like in the cartoons where you plant a magic seed, then you put some magic potion on it, and boom, just up it goes immediately. That would be great. It doesn't work that way. And it's frustrating. Things just creep along and you wish the growth would happen faster. I mean, I get that. I get it when it comes to growing things in the ground and I get that when it comes to ministry. In the same way, Jesus says the word of God will grow. God will do the work, but according to his timetable, in his wisdom. And it doesn't depend on fancy spokesmen or cool marketing campaigns or anything like that. The word of God will do it all. Now, we have to be about our best 
to honor the Lord. But that should be the motivation of doing our best, to honor the Lord, not in thinking if I'm not the best, if I don't come up with this crafty thing, if I don't have this ingenious plan, if we don't have this cool web page or Twitter account or whatever, then God just won't grow his people. Finally, God does things in his word because it's his word. The word does things. We all do things with our words, right? We teach. Like right now, I'm teaching, maybe boring, maybe frustrating you, right? Uh, We complain, we curse, we bless, we exhort. We do all sorts of things with our words, and God does too. But he's God when he does things, and he's powerful. The word of God does things. And when it comes to the most important things, the word of God does it all. This is Luther's testimony as he looked back on this big reformation that he kicked off when he just tacked a few questions about indulgences on the bulletin board of the the college, the church door at Wittenberg. He said, take me for example. I, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught preached, translated God's word. Otherwise, I really did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Nothing has God accomplishes things with his word. In in a sense, the the word of God is utilitarian. That's not all it is, but it's utilitarian. God does things with his word. He comforts, he blesses, he curses, he admonishes, he teaches. And in all things, he glorifies himself through his word. God's words are never just a, a revelation of the state of the divine mind, a transcript of the free flow of theistic thought. God's words are purposeful. They do things. That same powerful word that spoke the world into existence is the same that echoed in the voice of a man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, commanding the dead to live. Lazarus, come forth. And that word was so powerful because it was literally the Son of God who spoke it that the dead man, Lazarus, heard and obeyed. And then most importantly, that same man cried out in agony, but victory, it is finished. Enabling life to come to all who would believe. And when that word is understood, illuminated by the Spirit, the dead still hear it and obey. Objects of wrath, dead in trespasses and sin, as we read from Ephesians 2 today, hear it and obey becoming adopted sons and daughters. We go from darkness dwellers to kingdom heirs. The same voice now echoes across the pages of Scripture, ready to be read, creating belief and giving life wherever the Spirit causes it to echo. And the Word of God will do it all. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.